Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist, bioethicist, and person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery through deep dive interviews with all sorts of people working toward flourishing after addiction. Scientific researchers, artists and writers, clinicians, spiritual teachers, activists, people with lived experience, and generally people who are working on how to change and grow or who are helping others to do so. My goal here is to learn from all of their experience and wisdom and then share the lessons that are accessible and focused on flourishing and change. And at the same time, I want to respect how addiction is one of the most complicated and fascinating topics we can study. One that I think has tremendous implications for all of human flourishing and staying humble about all the nuance and challenge there. So first, a little update. I've been in a period of focusing more on this podcast, and I've gotten some great future episodes booked, and I feel like I'm finally getting the hang of it about a full year after I started. In particular, I feel like I'm in a rhythm of putting out these newsletters and getting some really lovely feedback from all of you. Today's guest in particular was prompted in no small part because of listener feedback. When people wrote to me in response to his newsletter describing some of her work to say how much they benefited from it. So I want to say thank you very much. It really means a lot to me to hear from you, and it helps keep me going. I started this podcast and newsletter because after I finished my book, still in the depths of COVID, I had to stop and reflect and ask myself what I enjoyed the most. And it was a process of being in connection and interviewing experts and other folks related to addiction and recovery, specifically the connection part of all of that. And I thought, what better than to keep that up for their own sake and then also to share them. And today I do teaching and other work at Columbia and in other academic organizations, but this is a different kind of connection and immediacy and relevance to hear from people who are working with addiction recovery in their own lives or in their clinical lives. So I wanted to say I really do appreciate everyone who makes the effort to be in touch. On that email newsletter, I am now regularly publishing information about books, research papers, policy developments I'm following and other resources that are helpful for addiction recovery. If you sign up for that email newsletter at my website, you'll also get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. The email list is the only way to get several of those resources and newsletters, so sign up on my newsletter to be in touch and to make sure you don't miss one. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. And today, it's my great pleasure and honor to be speaking with the acclaimed writer, Melissa Phoebos. Melissa is the author of four books, including the national bestseller, Girlhood, which was a Lambda Literary Award finalist, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and named a notable book of 2021 by the Washington Post, Time, NPR, and many others. She is an associate professor at the University of Iowa, where she teaches the nonfiction writing program. She's received a 2022 Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship, many other awards. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Granta, The Believer, McSweeney's, New York Times Magazine, many other acclaimed publications. And she is a person in addiction recovery who has written about that in many of her works. Her most recent book was her craft book, Body Work, which is also a national bestseller and already racking up accolades. We talk about so many fascinating topics, her own experience of addiction recovery, which again, she has described across several of her books and other writings. But in this case, I really appreciated getting a focused and beautiful description of it here. We talk about how she entered recovery, how artistic practice and writing and creative practice was a part of that recovery, how writing in particular was a crucial part of externalizing her thoughts and how that was necessary for her to progress in recovery, how she works her recovery program today, how creative practice is part of that recovery today, some of the pitfalls for her, how evaluation and performance and internal and external criticism have been problematic, how her definition of recovery has expanded in her life, how she has navigated the artist identity in recovery, and ultimately how she had to write to survive. I really appreciated her coming on. It was really helpful to me. I'm sure it'll be really helpful to many of you. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Professor Melissa Phoebos. All right. I'm here with Melissa Phoebos. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. 
I can't wait to talk to you about writing and craft and recovery and all the intersections. But I wanted to give people a place to land. So for people who don't know you, could you just say a little bit about your experience of addiction, maybe to focus it, you could talk about when you realized you had a problem and how you entered recovery? I sure can. I'll try not to unspool my whole life story (laughs) because I really understand my experience of addiction and recovery as like beginning in early childhood, but I will not start there. You know, I would say that I realized I had a problem. I mean, I understood that I had a different relationship to drugs and alcohol and really to a lot of things than my peers and my friends. And that I had this inexorable drive that once I had sort of locked into something that gave me a kind of feeling or just activated that drive in me that it was really that I was almost capable of anything in the service of sort of that pursuit. And I understood that other people didn't have that or that most other people didn't have that. And I instinctively knew that it was different and that I should be careful about revealing it. (laughs) But I was also a very sort of high functioning in some ways, addict and alcoholic and really adept at performing okayness and whatever was needed in a given situation. So I made it to, by the time I was 18 or 19, and it's so funny because that's very young, but I felt very old (laughs) at that age as addicts tend to. I'd been using for a while and I was physically addicted to heroin. And certainly when I was 19, I think when I was 18, I was around then, I started shooting up and was basically sort of a daily user. And I was actively trying to stop by the time I was 19. And so, you know, I still had that kind of bifurcated vision of my own because I was still like taking college classes. And I was like, this is situational. I need to get away from these people in the city. And then I didn't get sober until I was 23. And when I was 23, you know, things had sort of accelerated and developed in the way that they do. And I had eliminated the people and the places that were a problem and took my problem with me. And, you know, my world was really, really small. And I just had a moment when I was shooting speedballs alone in the dark. Like I had this situation where I lived with roommates and I had sort of been hiding my using from them or lied to them about, you know, what was up with me. And I just had a moment where I was like, oh, I've been sort of waiting for some consequence or an intervention or someone, my family to come be like, you're an addict, you need to go to rehab or something. And I just had this moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to die. Like I'm too good at functioning through this and hiding it and eliminating people who threatened my active addiction and I'm going to die. And that's how people are going to find out what's really going on. And my mother's a psychotherapist. So I knew about 12 step programs I actually had a piece of paper magnetized to my fridge that had a list of like helplines as a joke. (laughs) And I was like, well, this is handy. (laughs) So I called it and I was like, I need, I need to go to a meeting. And I went to a meeting and immediately was like, I identify with all of these people. I knew I was an addict at that point. I had been sort of cycling in between kicking and relapsing for years at that point for like four years at that point. I was exhausted. Yeah. And that I knew it was the place like immediately. And it only took a few months of sort of flirting with it before I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about what the heroin did for you? And then later the speedballs, because you talked about fear quite a bit in a lot of your works. Yeah. I, from childhood, I remember having this very attuned sense of what was going on with other people. Like I just saw a lot in other people, like what they were feeling, what they wanted from me. It was sort of this innate, like heightened perception slash codependency Mm. where I just felt this pressure to sort of respond, care for, kind of form myself in, in response to other people and what I saw. And it was a lot. And I, I feel, I, re- I remember feeling really overwhelmed and just having like a really overwhelmed sort of affect with other people 
and, and also systems and school and like politics. And it was just like, I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is a lot to take in and to manage. And for me, drugs relieved me of that, you know? And I think the first drugs that I really, I mean, I messed with psychedelics and a lot of weed as like an adolescent and a teenager. But when I started doing, it was actually cocaine that I first really connected with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh yes. Cause it felt so sharpening and empowering. And I just like, didn't feel overwhelmed until it was gone. And then I was like coming down from cocaine would put me in an almost suicidal space. It was like so painful. And I actually started doing heroin and opiates as a method of sort of, you know, modulating the bad effects of doing cocaine. And so those were always sort of paired for me. And downers were kind of like, boring. I just got sick the first few times I did heroin. I was into sort of having pills to come down from cocaine and And then it just started to work on me in that different kind of way. Like I I kind of discovered that I could just feel okay absolutely anywhere. And I remember understanding that as a kind of like miraculous freedom, like the sort of opiate, you know, those brain chemicals. And I remember saying to like one of my running buddies at the time, it's like, I could just be so happy and content literally anywhere, like sitting on this stoop in the East Village, like... You know, and now it's so funny because it's that seems so sad to me to sort of control your affect such that really degraded circumstances feel perfectly okay. And I think that was for me, drugs were completely about controlling my affect and not feeling overwhelmed and not feeling anxious and like responsible, not and not sort of being fraught by the tension between sort of. I just always had a double life, which is, you know, really empowering when, when you start and really sort of devastating and exhausting after a pretty short amount of time. Yeah. That's one thing that comes through really strongly as well. The double life and the fascination with the double life. You know, I I would say you seem to be fascinated by the counterculture, by the taboo. And I was wondering about how that played into your addiction and recovery too. Like, is it fair to say that your ideas about yourself were also a barrier or something that you had to work with in terms of getting perspective on and recovering from addiction? Yeah, absolutely. Because I always, you know, I think those sort of dual drives that I had, it was like that inexorable sort of addict drive that was also manifested as like an interest in pushing boundaries and interest in nether worlds and just like seeing how far I could go in certain directions. Like I just had a hunger for that and a curiosity for that. And then also being like a people pleaser and very ambitious and kind of a chameleon and like moving in both of those directions from before I even picked up, I think. And then when I got sober, on one hand, it was a tremendous relief because that sort of my whole life had sort of like the people pleasing, high achieving stuff had sort of withered to an extent where it was like mostly the netherworld <laughs> where my <laughs> life at the end, I was like a full-time sex worker and like very moving in pretty small circles in my life. And then when I got sober, it was like, I mean, you know, when you hang out with sober addicts, it's like the hidden the underside becomes the overside and it becomes people are laughing about the like the heaviest baggage i was carrying became like a punchline which was such a relief it was wonderful you know and so there was that sort of the release from having to sort of maintain this hidden self and this hidden life and at the same time like i couldn't just turn off the performance aspects of myself and so for the first sort of round of sobriety I was like, oh, this is the way to act as if I am doing this, you know? And what happened sort of unsurprising to me now is that I relapsed and I didn't tell anyone. And I I didn't keep relapsing, but I did. It was like it all, everything that sobriety had given me started to slip out of my hands, which... I understood as just like a catastrophic depression that was 
happening. You know, I didn't actually connect it with like being dishonest with the sober people who've been helping me because I had been dishonest for so long (laughs) that it felt really minor. And that was a story that I sort of was building inside myself. I was like, oh, this is between me and God. This is between me and myself. And I wasn't continuing to do it. So it's just the idea that I would have become this kind of princess in the pea with this lie just felt like, what? No, lies are the thing that have helped me survive all this time. So yeah, so I relapsed and didn't tell anyone and probably made it another couple months. And I felt, you know, there was like some suicidality. I felt like I had to check myself in somewhere or like go home and live with my family. Like I couldn't really function. I felt, I mean, and the most remarkable part of it was that all of the comfort and relief and companionship and just like the, the isness of, of sobriety and AA, I just like couldn't access it. And it started, it just felt empty. And like, I was on the outside, like I just couldn't, And I didn't understand how it had worked and now it wasn't working anymore, which sent me spiraling into sort of like terror and depression. And I decided to tell my sponsor that I was, I needed to like go check myself into a psych ward or something. And, and I was like, well, I might as well tell her I relapsed. Like that just like was not, I did not understand that as the, as there was not a causal relationship. I was just like, I might as well tell her since like, who cares at this point? I feel like I'm going to die. And I went to her apartment and I told her and I said, you know, very dramatically, like I relapsed and I'm going to need to go to Beth Israel or whatever. And she was like, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Maybe you do need to do all of that stuff, but let's, let's try praying first. And I was like, "Mm -mm, I cannot pray in front of another person. And she was like, okay, cool. That's fine. You just, I'll do it. And she just like said this little prayer to her higher power and said, asked that, that Melissa's God-shaped hole be filled. And this was language I was really familiar with. And I was okay with the spiritual aspects of AA. I had always had really strong spiritual tendencies and was raised kind of atheist and so didn't have any like religious trauma. Anyway, I was just like cracked enough that I just got in, in a different kind of way and letting her see me in that desperate, most desperate place it just like got in, like, I'm going to cry. It, this, And when I walked out of her apartment, she was like, let's just go. I'll just meet me at a meeting tomorrow. Like, don't do anything else. And we'll just see what happens. And I walked out of her apartment and it was gone. Like it just lifted. It's like the closest thing to a white light experience I've ever had. Like it's rarely that immediate. And I think for me, it was such a gift because it was so clear that like, I cannot like secrets are the most toxic poison for me, you know, and I have to let myself be seen, not just by God, not just by myself, but by someone who knows my affliction. Like I just have to allow myself to be seen. And that is something that I could never do. Even as a kid, you know, I was hiding parts of myself and, and I was so grateful, you know, I was like ready to kiss the East village sidewalk when I walked out of her. So grateful. But I've been sober since it's been, it's been, you know, 18 years since then. Wow. That's beautiful. And it it sounds like she truly saved your life. Mm -hmm. You're comfortable with spirituality. It sounds like you're spiritual, but not religious. So how do you understand that white light experience? What, what happened there? Yeah. I mean, I think I understand it mostly through like a psychological lens, but I don't that, you know, psychology and divinity are not discreet in my understanding, you know, Mm -hmm. I understand like, you know, the way psychology, our psyche's function feels like an expression of the spiritual, certainly to me. So it felt like a very spiritual experience. And also I think it was, I have, as I think a lot of people do, but I can only speak for mine. There's a part of me, like a higher, a higher part of me that is loving and wants me to survive and is like so profoundly committed to survival and is constantly trying to 
to like circumvent the parts of me that my death drives, you know? And, and I think it just finds a way, like for me, writing is an expression of that part of me. Like it is such a, such a fundamental function of sort of, I understand it as a kind of sublimation, you know? And so I think like that was just the way it was the way that I found to sort of survive. And it was not transparent to me, but it was like a successful machination of the the part of my psyche that was like bent on survival and believed that I deserved to live and, and understood that sort of secrecy and concealment and performance were fatal for me. And that I had to, I had to comprehend that in a way that was just (laughs) non-negotiable. You know, like there can't, that's one of those areas for me that if there's a gray area, I will dig into it and and die there. And I have to, it just had to be super blunt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That's a great preview of writing too. I want to bookmark that to come back to later about the function of writing and that higher part of yourself. But I wanted to ask one more question about recovery because in Whip Smart, there's this passage that I find so beautiful and relatable about fear and you're writing about how heroin eradicated fear for you and it's hard to know how much you suffer from fear until you experience total freedom from it and you're right most of the buzzing the anxiety the ticker tape that streams ceaselessly through my mind was motored by fear what's going to happen how can i control it what can go wrong what is already gone going wrong how can i fix it what if i can't fix it what if i'm not good enough what if nobody else is what if there's no use in anything and so on and so on ad infinitum? And that sounds, I think, so relatable. And also it's it's a great example of that expression came from my drinking state for my thinking. It immediately made me think like, okay, what's happening now in 2022? And like, how how is that showing up for you now? How are you working with it? You know, maybe a recent experience with recovery or is that is that something that you still, you're still working with the ticker tape? Yeah. I have to say, I have experienced radical relief from that aspect of myself. And I don't know, I feel moved to say that this is not true for everyone. And most of the people I know need sort of outside help and prescribed chemicals and like a lot of things to treat like comorbidities. But I don't at this point, you know, I remember in my second year of sobriety, I was like, the drive to use had mostly sort of receded. Like I wasn't dealing with cravings. Like the first year was all about just like not relapsing. And, but in the second year, it felt like that was gone. And that ticker tape was just like swelled to fill the space. And it was like, without, without that consolidation of my obsession on drugs, it just sprayed everywhere into everything. (laughs) And I had no practice for sort of managing it. It was like this wild, horrible fire hose. And I just, I remember the mornings were the worst and I would wake up and just be like, I, I cannot live with this in perpetuity. Like I don't, you know, and just other sober people told me like, it will change, you know, this will change. And if it doesn't, you have recourse to make other decisions, but just like so much needs to be cleared out in the first few years, just like see what happens. And for me at this point, I am relatively free of that. Like I would not describe myself anymore as an anxious person. Weirdly, I wake up in the morning like super excited. Like I have this extremely resilient cheerfulness now. It is so weird. Um, (laughs) And this has been true for most of these 18 years. Like I, I returned to this, I would say by my like, maybe my fourth year sobriety, third or fourth year of sobriety, I started waking up and being like, what's going to happen today? (laughs) You know? And I think I was like that as a, like a little kid, you know, I was like a pretty cheerful little person. And I found that once I figured out what my wife refers to as my modules, and I figured out the the maintenance, the incredible high maintenance (laughs) it requires for me to treat my set of burdens psychologically and what I understand as my alcoholism and addiction, if I'm doing all of that stuff, like I am like really liberated from the ticker tape only I lapse into it once in a while, you know, but most of my days are 
our good days and our days where I feel like at peace inside myself and I'm not sinking my teeth into things the way that I used to sort of be tormented by, but I have to do a lot of shit to get to that place. (laughs) And I, and I experience like pretty regular sort of frustration and feeling like, ugh, I have to do so much. Like I, I, you know, why do I have to do all of this stuff? But, but when I stop, it immediately pops up. It's so it's there. The potential is always there. You know, it really feels like my medicines are behavioral. There are set, there are multiple sets of practices. Yeah. So this is impossibly personal, but maybe you could tell us a little bit. What are the modules and maintenance? What, what needs the maintenance? Sure, sure. Oh, I'm happy to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So the modules are my recovery program, like number one, and that has its own sort of subset <laughs> of, <laughs> of practices, right? Like I have to be of service to other people. I have to be in regular contact. I go to meetings, and that's been true my for the whole 18 years, and I've been consistent pretty much through that whole time. And then therapy, which I am usually in, I take breaks every few years, but I am, you know, therapy and other therapeutic, you know, I've been to see like a lot of different kinds of healers, just like seeking out healers who have skills and insight that I don't exercise like body stuff. I have to do stuff both to be present in my body, but to also generate like brain chemicals that keep me kind of afloat. I used running for years, for decades, honestly, since I was a teenager to sort of help with that. And, you know, like the addict that I am, I overdid it and like blew out a bunch of discs in my back and I can't, I can't run anymore. So that's like a, something I'm working with right now to figure out like safer ways to do the exercise body module, spiritual practice, which for me is like prayer and meditation. And also like being in nature, just like you know, connecting with the divine in whatever ways I'm feels sort of easiest at whatever, wherever I'm at meaningful connection with other people, basically like being seen by other people, like meaningful contact and engagement with people who really know me and with whom I can be really honest about what's going on and my creative practice. Right. There we go. Yeah. That's, I was going to add that if we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> come and to I don't it. do all of them every day. Yeah. But a day where I do all of them is a guaranteed like a day, you know, (laughs) but I have to do all of them basically like every week and I need to do at least a couple of them every day. Or I start to like, I just start to slide. I start to go in a downward spiral instead of an upward spiral. Right. Yeah. The cause and effect becomes very clear, doesn't it? Oh yeah. I've, I feel like most of us have done like extensive tests right? <laughs> because like what can what's the minimum yes. you know how much tv can i watch instead of exercise right right exactly what if i just like to what level can i just dissociate and not have to do the work <laughs> and get into a cruise control like i've done a lot of experiments and there's just no there's no shortcut for me right right i mean that sounds like a big theme in your recovery is that it was imperative and life-threatening and life-saving that you work with that fear even after putting down the substances and so it, it you really threw yourself into it and you didn't have the luxury of not working on it and you brought up the creative process so maybe we should we should talk about that you talk about in your most recent book body work that a fulfilling writing life is one in which a creative process merges with the other necessary processes of good living. And so in the way you discuss it and the ways other discuss it, there's a sort of, how can I put this? Sometimes, especially among artistic circles, the sense I get is people feel tentative or shy about talking about the potentially transformative power of aesthetic practice. You take that on head on right from the start of your most recent book. So could you talk more about that? Just the, the, the ways in which writing is transformative and it is part of your recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the thing that I sort of come back to again and again, that, that holistic model of living really. I mean, I think I understand my addiction and alcoholism as something that permeates every every facet and every sphere of my life, you know, it will move in and manifest and corrupt and grow like in any avenue that I, in creative work, in 
my professional life in my, the way I take care of my body with like everything. And so for me also, like I am so high maintenance, like my sobriety and my equilibrium is so high maintenance. There's not enough time in life for me to like do all of my modules because they're also always increasing. Like as I deepen and change, like my aspirations for sort of presence and connection with other people and all of that grow. And so it's not like it, it gets less, it always grows. And so for me to have a life where I am really immersed and devoted to a creative practice, like being an artist is so consuming, you know, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of time among many other things. And, you know, I, I know, you understand this, like also having an academic life, it's just, there's not enough for me to do it all. And it has to be merged. Right. And so I think on some way it's like a pragmatic way of life where I was just like, all right, I just have to be like, my friendships also have to be the conversations that are treating my sobriety. They also need to be people who understand what it's like to have a spiritual life or a creative life. And so like, things have just gotten more and more integrated over time. And now, of course, like my understanding of psychology is that it's all about integration, right? Like that is, that is the work of healing and of transformation is integration of experience, you know, into the psyche, into the ways we live. And so it's like, there is that way I understand it pragmatically, but sort of narratively in my life, it's really just, I recognized and located sort of writing as a pastime that brought me relief and that felt like a place. I don't know. It's hard to describe because when I was a kid, I did not have a cognitive understanding. I could not have articulated what writing meant to me or why I did it or why it felt so important, why it had so much gravity for me. I'm, I'm sort of scaffolding my understanding now onto it, obviously, but I was just like, this feels good. This feels like a relief. This feels like a place. It just fits me. You know, I understood myself as someone who like might not fit into society <laughs> inside myself. I was like performing and I clearly actually doing a pretty good job of it, but I was like, what is inside me does not match this scheme, <laughs> you know, and with writing and being a writer and just like that sort of the artistic life, I was like, oh, that's a place that I might fit. That's like the round hole for me, the round peg. And I just understood that. It was a way of being honest and being integrated and sort of expressing the parts of myself and my whole self in a way that I could not tolerate with other people. I couldn't do it in relationship. And so for me, I think it became that space really early on. And I carried that into my life. It was like the place. And for me, it's like writing is a weird truth serum. Like it is and again, I understand this as a kind of function, as the, the, the sublimation of the part of my psyche that is like, this is something I need to do to survive. And not only to survive, but to thrive. There has to be a place where I say these things and externalize them and understand them in, in language, in story. Like, I won't make it if I don't have that space. And so I just like cultivated it all along. Even at my bottom, I was like, I would like be shooting speedballs and then like furiously writing stuff that I could never even look at the next day. But it was always, it was just always a part of it for me. And I think, you know, as, as an adult, as like a professional writer, I have come to understand writing as a place where the aesthetic drive is is a mediator between me and sort of the most painful truths and aspects of myself and my experience and so it gives me a kind of distance that I don't have in therapy I don't have in a conversation with a friend and so it is this like testing ground where I can sort of say things and look at things for the first time I can sort of break the silence with myself and I think the resistance that people have that you were talking about has everything to do with feeling like acknowledging the healing elements of making art that it will dismiss or devalue or erase the aesthetic value of it and the aesthetic pursuit of it. And I have never understood those things as an opposition. And so I think for me, it's not a problem, right? Because I understand the practice as an aesthetic one. And it's really in hindsight that I'm like, oh, I see 
these are synthesized in my experience. You know, like I work through the hard stuff by being distracted by making art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really inspiring. And I think a beautiful model for being in connection with creative impulses. And, you know, frankly, you just strike me as someone who's very healthy, 18 years of sobriety under your belt. You've got a few books under your belt. And I can't help but think about people often in early recovery or otherwise who really, really struggle to give voice to that creative side of themselves, whether it's writing or something else, like, especially in cases of addiction, like the creative process becomes so intertwined with drinking, with drug use, you need the the high or you need the come down, or there's a sense that the darkness or the the difficulty is necessary fodder for the writing. And so, you know, I've seen so many people and I've experienced it myself that the, there's, it, it can be hard to just get to that point where you're doing the creative work, even if you do have that sense of that higher part of yourself saying, this is necessary. This is part of what helps you to grow and transform and all the rest. So, you know, maybe it sounds like maybe you've never had as much of a writer's block experience, but what do you have to say to people like that? Yeah, I did have that. I had that really powerfully because I did connect. I wrote so much when I used and it felt, it was just, I mean, there were like speedballs were the perfect drug experience for me, but speedballs and writing felt like the next level of pairing. It was, yeah, it was a big part of my using. And when I got sober, when I got sober, there was a part of me that was like, okay, perhaps I understood sobriety as like, based on nothing, of course, it was going to be this like grim, joyless deprivation. And I was like, well, I'm, the option is death. The other option is death. So I guess I can never laugh again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and equally devastating was my suspicion that I would never write again was that the artistic process, because I think like a lot of artists and probably there's an analogous figures for people in other disciplines or whatever their passion is, I had collected and sort of made idols of writers who were career addicts and alcoholics. Like William Burroughs was like, it's amazing to me that he was like, Anyway, <laughs> what he meant to me, but I like collected these where I was like, he lived for a really long time, wrote amazing work. Like I just was, you know, very committed for my own rhetorical desires. <laughs> you know, I wanted to build an argument for being an addict and that being sort of fused with the artist identity because so many artists have been addicts and alcoholics. And of course it was like a very skewed vision of artists, right? And the artistic life. And like, you know, shortly after I got sober, it became easy to be like, oh, imagine what all of those people I idolized might've done if they hadn't been addicts, <laughs> you know, like or if they'd gotten sober, the work they might've created. Anyway. So when I first got sober, I was already just grieving because I couldn't imagine writing being sober and being sober because being sober had been, you know, the experience I'd had of it, the, the, the very spotty experience I've had of it, just like there was no space there for what I understood as, as artistic uh, creativity. Cause my brain, that ticker tape was just, would just stomp, you know, there was no space except for trying to manage it and like not kill myself. And I remember my first sponsor being like, I was like, Oh God, I might never write again. I'm going to be so behind in my ambitions and so on and so forth. And she was just like, please take it easy. Like, it's going to take a little while, but like you will return to these things. And she was a photographer. So I was able to sort of hear that. She was like, but I think I was like, okay, like a couple of weeks. And she was like, no, more like a couple of years. And I was like, I can't think in years, you know, like I can only think in hours. And, and she was absolutely right. You know? And like, as I developed the tools for living with my brain and started feeling my way into like those modules and applying them. It's like a little space opened up, like a door got cracked and some light got in. And I was like, Oh, like I can imagine now, like by the time I even had like 90 days sober, I was like, Oh, I can imagine 
being in a place where that's possible. And I just moved toward that. And it was actually really motivating for me in terms of doing the work and figuring out how to not relapse and all of that. And I returned to it. I returned to writing, you know, and pretty quickly after that, you know, it was probably like in my second year or something like that. And I, as soon as I started doing it, after the initial period where it felt really awkward and hard, look kind of like having sex for the first time. It's just like, ah, hi. Oh, okay. Is that, is that working? No. Okay. I'll try something else. It was sort of like that and re-engaging with my creative practice. And then like, once I sort of got that fire going, you know, I was like, oh my God, I've never, there are a few things that I've been as wrong about as I was about the relationship between drugs and alcohol and specifically drugs and my creative practice. Like it was so, I mean, who knows? Maybe it did. It was like helpful, you know, when I was using, but it's just, I can't imagine. I would never, aside from the like fact that I would be dead, even if I had, I would never have written these books. I would never have published a book. I, the the elements of the creative practice that connect so profoundly with my spiritual self, my psychological self, the way that writing makes me able to live in the world, just like the very central sort of like nucleus of, I don't even know what the word is. It's just like at the center of my life in a way that it could never have been if I was using because I would be so alienated from myself. And that is one of the things every newly sober person I've encountered, which is a lot over the 18 years, who's an artist has that fear. And it's one of those things where I'm so happy to be like, I was a hundred percent wrong. I was so sure I was right about that. And I was so wrong. Like I really could not have been more wrong. What a relief. Yeah. So you were returning to a creative process that felt good, even though it was corrupted by speedballs and all sorts of nonsense. But I, I can imagine there's there's people for whom like they have a they have like a yearning for a creative process, but it never really clicked for them on drugs or otherwise. Or other people maybe in recovery start to have a, an aspiration, or they just have some sort of itch, and then they don't know how to pursue it or how to even get started. And so I guess I'm wondering like what it was actually like for you at two years. Was it clear the decks, total free writing stream of consciousness? Did you, did you have an ambition to, to write whip smart? Or did you think to yourself that my first book will be a memoir and it starts here and it ends here and I'll cover these topics. Like what was it actually like to return to creative practice in recovery? Yeah. I definitely did not have the foresight or vision to imagine what actually happened. I never thought I would write memoir. It's weird because I think this seems implausible to people sometimes when I tell them because I was working as a professional dominatrix and having this like really obviously sort of illuminating wild experience. And I was taking notes. I had a notebook in my locker in the dressing room where I would just take notes of like the wildest stuff that would happen, but I was not planning on writing about it. I just like had a practice of like writing things down when they were, when I was having an extraordinary experience, I would just write things down. I can, because I had been doing that since I was a kid but I was like, I will never write about this. I will never write about myself. I will never write nonfiction. <laughs> and I, so I just started, I started writing a novel about addicts. And so it was just nothing ever happened with that novel and nothing will ever happen with that. But I gave myself a project, right? It was, I am very motivated by sort of goals and constraint and puzzles. Like I need a problem to solve that's sort of outside of myself. And so I was like, all right, I need to figure out how to write a novel. And I was just writing into it. And I, and I just, it was like thinly veiled autobiography. Like the characters weren't me, but they were going through the same stuff that I was going through. And it was a way I can see now very clearly of sort of externalizing and processing what was happening. And, you know, in my head, I'm such a repetitive thinker. I don't really have a good memory. Like it's very jumbly in there, <laughs> you know? And this has always been true. And I think this is part of why I have this lifelong practice of writing. Like I have to sort of externalizing my thoughts is the way that I progress them and get to something else. And so I think immediately was sort of functioning 
in my life and my sobriety in a very sort of material way. And it was like helping me get to the next thought and understand what I thought about things. And I was, you know, second year of sobriety, I was figuring out who I was. Like, I didn't know what foods I liked or like, I was like, oh, I don't actually like punk music. I like, you know what I mean? Just like figuring out who I was and, and writing through these like imagined figures was a way for me to do that work. And so it's a weird sort of seems like sort of paradoxical in a way, but writing, I had all these ambitions and goals for writing. Like I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to publish books. That was always true. But when I started writing, like to have a goal that was not external, that was just an internal goal to treat it sort of like a kind of art therapy was actually, I can see like the quickest route to sort of what my goals and ambitions were because being externally motivated by other people, by like things that are evaluated by outside people is so problematic for my psyche. And I think for a lot of addicts, you know, it's like that pressure can be really paralyzing. And that actually didn't motivate me because I was so obsessed with performance. So when I was driven by an internal goal of seeking clarity and sort of exploring what I actually thought and experiencing the the pleasure of finding words for something that felt so ephemeral and abstract in my mind, naming my feelings. Um, that was so satisfying. And to be driven by that, there was so much less resistance than when I was thinking about like external markers. And so I, I think that is how it started. And then, and then I also understood that I was easily overwhelmed. I was a big procrastinator all the way, you know, I finished college as an active addict and I was just like, it was agony because I was a terrible procrastinator. And I really decided to go to grad school as a strategy for navigating my own sort of bad habits and procrastination because I knew that I would work so much faster for another person <laughs> or a structure. You know, like if I had a structure and someone being like, do this, I would be like, okay. And I would do it. Whereas I would be like a, a fussy cat sort of trying to find a place to lie down. It took me like three hours to get started on my own, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you had an ambition that you wanted to write. You wanted to be a professional writer. You wanted to write books. And then you, you sought out external constraints or structures to help you write. And now, you know, you've, you've written several books. It seems to me like you're still producing work at a pretty rapid clip. I mean, you could look at your life and say, you know, Melissa doesn't have to push quite so hard or like, <laughs> and so I'm wondering, these things may, might be related. They might not be related, but you also wrote about how writing about transformation can also transform the world and that writing can be a political and a liberatory practice. And, and so I'm wondering like today, what gets you out of bed and to the writing table in the bottom line, why write today? Cause it's not, it seems like it would be different than what you're describing about the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't, you know, I think, you know, you're catching me at this kind of moment of reckoning in some ways, because that sort of idea, you don't have to push so hard is one that pretty much everyone in my life is saying to me and has been for a little while. <laughs> and I think like what it's been so helpful and sort of constructive and structuring for me to have goals and to be working towards something. And in some ways it's a way of, it's a form of sort of distraction or obfuscation of like the really hard work that I do in writing. I'm like, I'm doing this so that I can publish this book or get tenure or whatever. And, and then I go do this really deep, hard emotional work. And, and, but now I've sort of gotten the things like I've reached the point that I was like imagining like when I was a kid, you know, and there are other forms of work in my life that I want to be doing. And a lot of them are focused on sort of slowing down and dropping into some other parts of my life, like the body stuff, you know, recovering, having this like basically an intermittent sort of disability as a result of one of my longtime sort of survival strategies. Like there've been a lot of things pointing me towards like slowing down and like sinking in in ways that I've avoided by working really, really hard. And I also, you know, writing is my, one of my modules. Like I, it's whether I have, I have become really dependent on it for a kind of psychological work that is really sustaining for me. So I think it will always be a practice, but 
I am now sort of, I'm working on a new book and I'm trying to, through working on the book, sort of evaluate and sort of remap my relationship to it and really thinking about sort of how I want it to function in my life. Do I want writing to be at the top of the hierarchy of, of sort of the kinds of work I do? And both sort of in a professional and in a like psychological sort of recovery way, because it always has been number one over every relationship, over everything. And I don't know if that entirely works for me all the time anymore. So, and also I've gotten to a place where like, I've processed so much big stuff. Like I'm in a different, I don't need it to do the same kind of work it has been doing. And I think that way of sort of writing, thinking about writing as a political tool, thinking about writing as a more outward facing or outward looking practice feels really, really present for me right now. Particularly because like what I see when I look outwards from my own sort of stuff is so devastating. And for me right now, a question is sort of how do I, what is basically what's the most useful life for me in a country that it feels really, really sick and over which I have very little power. (laughs) I'm like, how can I use this tool now that I've like worked through my biggest stuff? Like what is the most useful way for me to engage and sort of communicate what I figure out to the world, you know? So big questions. Big questions. And it makes the self-care part so much more important, I think. And I really, I really resonate with what you said and appreciate you sharing that, that there's an element of what I'm hearing is there's an element of forcing or intensity and putting writing first that you're working on changing. I mean, I, I identify with that. I had to finish my book during COVID under a lot of other pressures and while still maintaining clinical practice and all the rest. And right now I'm feeling a lot of fear about future writing projects. It, it feels to me, I'll just share my own experience. And then I wonder if there's any comparison. It feels to me almost like the, the adrenalinized way that I wrote at least parts of that project are so associated with the writing process that there's a fear like if, if writing is easier, <laughs> less driven, am I missing something? It, it almost feels analogous to the question of like that, that many people in recovery have. If my writing was intimately interwoven with drinking or substance use, then how could I do any differently in the future? I've got this sort of structure and model for how it's supposed to go. It's frightening to think about a different approach to it. I don't know if that, if you're having similar thoughts. Yeah. It makes me feel like, like I just thought of that line in the big book about I'll be the hole in the donut. You know, it's like, (laughs) it gives me a little bit of that feeling of like, I, who, I don't know, there is a way that certain kinds of activity or toiling or certain kinds of work, however helpful and important they are to my survival and recovery and all of that, there's a way that I, have understood writing as an assertion of my existence and my selfhood. And like, I feel like I exist and like I matter when I am doing that work. And it can be a little troubling to sort of locate so much of myself in one thing, because then I feel like who am I? What do I care about? What is the meaning of my life? I'm not doing that, you know? Yeah. So I am struggling with that stuff. And it also, it makes sense to me your work feels so much so directly sort of speaking to the conditions of our world and to sort of the experience of other people and like a form of a form of service that feels very direct and like you know has a lot of political possibility and anyway yeah i imagine that it's all it's all braided together for you too mhm you know mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my the last thing I'll say about this is my my experience is that thinking too in too utilitarian a way is limiting. And mm-hmm. if I were to approach writing as some sort of puzzle, like what should I do to make some sort of change, then that's a form of selfishness. That's self-centered. That's me thinking. That's me being narcissistic. Like you know, let me 
how can I, how can I create some change rather than just like, how can I bring myself forward? Honestly? Yeah. It's, you know, the place where I'm at, I have thought about that so much because I think when I was younger, like in my early twenties, it was easier to believe like, Oh, art is going to change, revolutionize the world. And I was like, my art is not going to, going to sway the whatever. It's not going to change like the most devastating parts of what's happening in America right now. But like, I'm not the person I'm not equipped with (laughs) the things like I cannot run for office. I am not like a charismatic, like radical leader. Like these are not where my strengths lie and making a little puzzle about figuring something out is actually like the most reasonable application of the talents and like possibilities that are inherent in me. And I do think that that old, like the end point of that does help people. And I think maybe even for you, like for me, teaching is in there, but I feel like being a clinician is like even more directly, clearly like a helping profession that is not reliant upon you writing. But when I do my creative work, when I make that little creative puzzle and I work it out and and like arrive at a better understanding and a, a more integrated sort of self, it makes me, this is very direct. It makes me more available in those more directly sort of service oriented ways. Like it makes me more available to my students. It makes me more generous. It makes me happier. And I just am in the very small local sphere in which I can affect change. Like that work very clearly sort of makes me more useful, you know, but there's a balance, right? Because if I'm obsessed and goal oriented and like doing all of that, that's like sometimes makes me less available. So I'm trying to like balance this, obviously, like none of our strong suit. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to find that place where I'm, I'm doing enough and not, and not too much. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I think balance is overrated in the sense that like, <laughs> it doesn't, it's not like some like lever on a fulcrum that achieves like a perfect right. stillness. Like you're not still until you're dead. If it, for me, like the pendulum is, it's got less of an arc, <laughs> but it's still a pendulum. It's still moving. But this, this has been awesome. I know you, you don't have that much time left, but I wanted to ask you, I, I thought it was so cool when you said we're, we're all ultimately writing about the same four or five things, death, trauma, love, loss, recovery. Recovery is great. I, I love that recovery gets its own shout out there. So can you give me like maybe a couple of books or other writings on recovery that you've read recently? Something that's you know fun or helpful or you know, something that's changed the way you think about it, influenced the way you look at addiction and recovery? Interesting. Let me think. I mean, I think also when I wrote that, I was thinking like for me, recovery is very much has a connotation of like recovery from addiction and alcoholism, but my definition of recovery just expands and expands. And for me, that is like one of the, that is like the primary way that I seek to sort of integrate and move through experience and not get stuck. And so I actually read a lot of sort of like trauma recovery theory and a lot of books that are sort of combining political work with healing work and sort of recovery more broadly construed. So those are the first books that sort of come to mind. Well, what's the first, what's the first title that comes to mind for someone who maybe is really curious about that, but hasn't had too much exposure where, where the political and the social and the trauma recovery stuff come together? Yeah, I, th- I think the work of Resma Minikam, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, which is about sort of racial trauma and healing, is pretty amazing. And he has an, a new book called The Quaking of America, which is very intense. Maybe it's not a primer, <laughs> but it's really about using sort of somatic methods to sort of respond to the like ceaseless trauma and like terror of watching what's unfolding in our country and sort of ways to sort of do somatic and body work and exercises to stay present and be useful instead of just shutting down, you know, or hiding from it. I love Resma Menicum. That's a, that's a great, it's a great one, a great shout out for Quaking of America. 
which I haven't picked up yet, but look forward to it. Yeah, it's very, it's very intense sometimes because it's sort of like, here is a breakdown of like the coming race war and like, and now curl yourself up in fetal position and slowly uncurl five times, you know, (laughs) it's just like, he sort of is like, look at this. And now that you're super activated, like take off all your clothes and go stare at yourself in the mirror with no judgment. It's like, very, it's not light work, but it does feel really, really useful. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of the work he's doing. There's another book that I mentioned in body work by, I think it's, is it Judith Herman who wrote trauma the trauma and recovery. I'm looking behind me on my shelf because I keep it very close, but I may have moved the trauma books to the library in the basement. But it's that is also a book. It's older, but it was like super revolutionary when it came out. And it's really sort of framing trauma and trauma work in terms of through sort of a feminist lens, but just looking at the sort of the timeline from, you know, I guess from sort of Freud to through the 80s. I think it was published in like maybe the late 80s, but it's just really sort of offers a really amazing sort of formative understanding of sort of trauma and recovery and treatment within sort of patriarchal structures. Um, And it's very readable. You know, I like to read a lot of psychology, but I like it to be readable. We should probably wrap up. It's been Uh, really fun. Yeah, it's been super fun. Yeah, I you're you're it's easy. I love talking about this stuff with you know, smart people who are also thinking about it. So, I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you. I think you'll help a lot of people and uh I really appreciate you taking the time. Anything you want to say in closing? Any any itch, parting words or request of the audience? Any other final thoughts? I don't how do I say this at the risk of you know, sounding corny. I mean, I am really corny. So I would say that's sort of the most outstanding experience of my own recovery has just been that realizing that before I had an experience, before I had every meaningful experience in sobriety and the ongoing experience of it, it was literally unimaginable to me. And it's so hard to find the faith or even the willingness to sort of step towards something that I cannot imagine and that I imagine is not going to be worth it or is going to be grim and to like just being driven by like the worst possibility is a really hard way to move forward. And it has been, it has been so much better than I ever could have imagined, you know, in just like every, every way, you know, so that humility is has been really, really precious for me. And I wish if I could go back to my, to my past self, that's what I would tell her is like, you literally cannot imagine what is on the other side of this and it is worth it. That's beautiful, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you for your work, your beautiful honesty and inspiration. I know it'll help a lot of people. It's been really great talking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Likewise. Thanks for talking with me. That's my interview with Melissa Phoebos. I hope you loved it. This one was really special to me. First, I really appreciate her description of modules and maintenance in her recovery program. These modules like seeking out therapy, healers, exercise, being in nature, spiritual practice, meaningful connection with other people, and of course, her creative practice. Her writing, I find so deep and powerful and in many cases, nuanced and challenging. But also in this description of her recovery practices, I thought it was such a real straightforward honesty about these components that are so often simple, but not easy. I also loved her description of how drugs were interwoven with her identity as an artist and how she had to reconfigure that. How she initially understood sobriety based on nothing, as something grim and joyless, and thought that the only other option was death. And then she had to rebuild an artistic identity. And finally, I thought it was just so beautiful how she described this higher part of herself, a higher part that was loving and that wanted her to survive, and how writing was part of that higher part, that she had to be honest and express parts of herself that she previously couldn't tolerate as part of progressing in recovery. 
Melissa's writings are great. Her books are wonderful, and she also has so many lovely long-form pieces, including recently. I'll link to a lot of that in the show notes on my website. If you don't know her, or you don't know her work that well, take a moment to check it out. Whether it's her memoir of working as a dominatrix, or her writings on craft and artistic practice, I'm sure there's something there for you. You can find more information in the show notes over at carlericfisher.com. And also there, you can sign up for my email list. You'll immediately get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. And you'll also stay up to date with the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings. Once again, all of that is at carlericfisher.com. And if you're finding this podcast useful, please help me get the word out. You can subscribe on your podcast player, leave a rating and review, and set this episode to just one other person you think would benefit. Thanks so much, and thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It is not medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, this podcast is just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my other work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated.